50 years ago, a publication titled The Limits to Growth warned of disastrous industrial and population decline later this century if we kept up our plundering of the earth. Now scientists are back with an update that the stakes have never been higher and the need for radical change never greater. This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Liang Li. The new publication titled Earth for All has just been released. It places a big focus on inequality. It says that without drastic interventions, social inequality could brew sufficient tensions to break apart countries at the end of the century, adding new details to how exactly civilizations could fall from the Limits to Growth publication in 1972. Climate change, it says, will accelerate this process. The authors of Earth for All says that that future could be avoided with what they call five extraordinary turnarounds in poverty, inequality, women's empowerment, food systems, and clean energy. Some of its biggest ideas? It calls for the Earth's natural resources, from underground minerals to intellectual property, to be regarded as common resources co-owned by the public. So whoever wants these resources pay a universal basic dividend to the people. Taxation should be revised, the authors say, such that the richest 10% takes no more than what the bottom 40% earns. These are big, bold ideas. How do we implement them? Have we got what it takes to deviate from business as usual and avoid the disaster that is predicted by computer models used for both books 50 years apart? Joining me on this podcast today is Jorgen Randers, who is an author to both Earth for All and The Limits to Growth. Randers is Professor Emeritus of Climate Strategy at BI Norwegian Business School and is a member of the Club of Rome, a think tank on global issues. Great to have you with us, Prof. Randers. Thank you. Thank you. So, Prof, I want to start with what really caught my attention somewhere near the first few chapters of the book. It's mentioned that inequality will be the biggest cause of societal breakdown, not climate emergencies. You know, given the attention we have on climate today, how different is this from the prevailing thinking that we have now? Uh, that is a, a good question, and it gives me the opportunity to repeat the fact that the real fundamental problem is still emissions of greenhouse gases. You know, that's driving climate change. The problem is that inequality keeps us from implementing the totally obvious solution to the climate change threat, which is, you know, to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. So it's indirect in the sense that inequality makes it very difficult to get political agreement on the strong action that is necessary in order to stop uh, warming. And the same thing goes for global poverty, which is the other huge challenge of the day. There are obvious solutions to the problem, but it is very difficult to get those solutions in place as long as you have unequal societies where the majority is paying the bill and the rich is on the surface. And I remember you cited examples such as the Yellow Vest movement against higher petrol prices, etc. Which, which is a very good example and very helpful that it exists. Namely, the fact that when the French elite decided on the absolutely correct policy, namely to increase energy prices, they forgot about the fact that for the lower half of the French population, this is really a big problem. And the Yellow Vests, of course, organized that part of society and stopped what would otherwise have been a very good uh, policy. And so the simple thing is that the solution is that you increase the energy prices for the richest 
10%. You do not increase the energy prices for the rest. Right, I see. And I, I guess um, this inequality and social tension index, it's really a, a major theme within the book, right? This social tension index is kind of represented in numbers. It rises to about 1.6 in the business as usual, too little, too late scenario compared to under 1.4 in a giant leap scenario where all the extraordinary measures are implemented. Can you tell me more about what these numbers represent and how big are the regional differences? So the main point here is that we believe that the social tension in society is a function of well-being. So when people think that well-being is improving, you know, then the tension in society is lower. And so in order to reduce tensions in society, the authorities need to be able to put in place solutions so that well-being goes up. This is very important because if uh, you are doing this uh, too late, you know, if you if the authorities allow uh, well-being to sink for a very long period of time, social tension gets so high that it gets difficult for the authorities to implement uh, supported policies. And so this is what we call the threat of social collapse or of societal breakdown. Right, I see, Prof. But I'm just wondering, you know, the numbers, I, I guess a, a good social tension index is at one where there's no tension, but I see that in the models, it rises to 1.4 to 1.6. I'm just wondering, what at what level is it, you know, a dangerous level of social tension? Is there an indication? No, the numerical values in our study are not reliable. It is the tendency it's the, the fact that it either goes up or goes down which is reliable we are after all talking about a huge system the global system which cannot be represented with precision in any type of, of mathematical model what you should be doing is to see that in the uh, too little too late scenario what happens over the next 50 years is that incomes are rising the, the disposable income of people is going up the social services per person is going up but on the other hand inequality is rising and the temperature is rising and the hope for the future is declining and the sum of those five factors you know make in the model system well-being peak and then start to decline over the next 50 years. The numerical values of the well-being index is not are not reliable, but the fact that it actually declines because the world is getting warmer and because inequality is rising as we continue liberalization, that's reliable. Um, are there big regional differences? Are there specific countries that are more at risk than others? Those countries that are safe are the ones where well-being, as perceived by the public, has been rising all along. And one of the best examples is, of course, China, you know, where public long-term perception of well-being has improved dramatically because of the 16 doubling of the GDP per person over the last 40 years. You know, so that's a situation where the tensions are low 
compared to other countries like the United States of America, where, you know, well-being has been flat or perhaps even declining uh, over the, the last uh, several decades, and where, you know, as you know, the frictions between the societal groups in America is much higher. Take our country, you know, Norway is one where well-being has been growing dramatically, you know, over the last uh, several decades, and so social tensions in our country is very low. It's much harder if you go down to... to, to the Middle East countries with war, etc., etc., where, of course, well-being has been declining for a long, long time and where tensions are sky high. On a separate note, when you look at Chinese economic development, the day when they can no longer maintain the high growth rates, you know, that means that the purchasing power of Chinese will no longer grow as fast and then you run the risk of social tension arising. Prof, let's move on to the next question. The role of stronger, more distributive governments is probably key to many of the solutions offered in the book. But looking at the world order today, you know, big businesses, corporate lobbies and the wealthy, they, they hold huge sway in the political systems in the world today. And they're, they're probably not going to like the, the solutions they're going to offer. How do we overcome this? So you're absolutely right in highlighting that the proposals uh, will not be well received by uh, the economic elite uh, at this point in time. The only way to solve this problem in a democratic society is, of course, to gather a majority, a political majority of voters that are in favor of a party that favors an active government and a well-funded active government, which either needs to raise its money through taxes on the rich, or can do what China has done, to print enough money, you know, to actually do those things that the government wants to do. But you're right, the main opposition against the five TAs will be from those that do not like what is needed in order to implement these things, namely an active government that has enough money to pay for the things that we need. And in in non-democracies, it is important that the elite that runs the country runs the country for the benefit of the majority instead of running the country for the benefit of themselves. And luckily, there exists examples of this. My country of Norway, You know, there a benevolent elite took the power in 1945 and kept it for 20 years while developing Norway. Uh, Then, of course, democracy took over in 1965 and uh, at least could build on the shoulders. And since you're from Singapore, of course, you know that your history is exactly the same thing, you know, where someone decided that they wanted to make Singapore into something good and did so. Prof, I'm going to jump the gun a little, but I mean, looking at the world order today, how likely do you think that there will be, you know, these enlightened leaders, both in democratic and non-democratic states, to, to kind of take on your, your, your suggestions and shift the world towards the solutions that it needs? I think it is very unlikely that we will succeed. I wrote a relatively famous book 10 years ago, called 
2052, which is my forecast of what will actually happen between 2012 and 2052. And it is a sad book in the sense that, yes, the possibility for humanity to solve the climate crisis and the population crisis, etc., is there. But I'm afraid that we will not do it. And the reason we will not do it is that most people are not willing to pay the bill, rightfully so. And this means that it is the elite, that the financial elite that ought to pay the bill, and they will resist. Of course, it doesn't mean that we will get total collapse of the world order, in my mind, over the next 50 years. It simply is that we will get a society where well-being is much lower than it could have been if we had an active state that was well-funded to solve those five totally obvious problems that we have. And, and, then, and, and of course, then you could ask, all journalists then ask the next question, so why the hell do you spend your time on this? You know, and, and, and the answer is that you know, it's much better to try to make the thing happen than it is to just sit back and, and relax. You, you already got me there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask that. But right, let's move on to the next question then. Looking at the five turnarounds, um, poverty, inequality, energy, food and women's empowerment, um, which do you think is the most challenging to, to kind of have the solutions materialize? I think the hardest one to implement is inequality. This would, of course, it's the simplest one in principle, because if just all people in a nation agreed to support a political party that was in favor of introducing very steep progressive taxation on the 10% richest, it's very simple to get enough money to solve the five turnarounds. And so at the same time, while this is the simplest one to speak about and the simplest one to solve, the resistance against that solution is very, very deep. If to take the, and even in very rich countries, you know, where one would have assumed that people would be smart enough and educated enough, that they would understand that the concentration of wealth and income in the world is such that the 10% riches control 50% of global income. And if you just taxed them 10% on income, you know, that will give 5% of the world a GDP. And if governments had that type of money and then spent it on what is needed in order to improve well-being of the poor uh, or the majority, you know, things would have been very simple. The simplest one to solve is the climate one. Because in order to solve the climate problem, you only need to do one thing, and that is to ban the use of coal, oil, and gas. If you just phase out the use of coal, oil, and gas in a linear manner from 2020 to, or from 2022 to 2050, so you're cutting 3% of the use every year, you know, that, that one policy solves the whole climate problem. All the other sources of greenhouse gases 
are so small compared to the 70% that comes from the burning of coal, oil, and gas. But of course, the resistance from everyone against that solution is, of course, also very strong. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it scares me a little if you say that climate is the easiest one, because from what I see, you know, even that one policy to cut down on, on the use of fossil fuels have had so much pushback in recent years, even though, you know, the science has been growing clearer and clearer on that. Yeah. And, and, the, and the reason, and here, it, so you're absolutely right in being worried. And this is where I am trying to push the public debate, because the, the pushback is not only from the rich, you know, the pushback is from the yellow vests, you know, from the ordinary people. So it means that we need to find a way of reducing the use of coal, oil and gas, which does not bother the average the working man and woman. You know, it must be paid for by the rich. And there exists, of course, concrete solutions for how to do this, namely the, the carbon tax, very high carbon tax at source, then you divide it by 8 billion people and you hand it back to the to the uh, or ordinary people. Right, gotcha, Prof. And and I, I guess the next question is really comparing, you know, 1972 and now. I mean, back then you already sounded the alarm that our growth rates are not sustainable. How different is the situation and the call to action now in 2022? So there are two huge differences. One is positive and one is negative. Uh, and let me start with with the negative. That's, so we are now in deep established and believed overshoot in the pollution area. So the climate emissions are now way above the sustainable level. So we have genuine overshoot, and the public feels this. You know, already we're starting to see the negative effects of. We of course have no collapse yet but but clearly we are in 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 overshoot the positive news is that we have solved the population problem you know in when we wrote the book you know we encouraged the education of women we encouraged you know health general health contraception the whole thing you know now 50 years down the line we see that the world population is going to peak in another 30 years roughly so we have solved the population problem, and that is the good news. I think one other thing I wanted to ask, comparing 1972 and now, is the role of technology. Because back in 1972, um, I think if I got it right, technology is something seen as something to help us grow our resources linearly against our exponential consumption. And that's why that's not enough to help us overcome this resource challenge. Has the role of technology, um, technological advancement changed now in 2022? You're absolutely right that in the first edition of Limits to Growth in 1972, in the basic model, you know, technologies were actually stable. They didn't even go linearly. They were stable. But that we changed very quickly. So even in the technical report that came out two or three years after the study, we used exponential technologies. And in our 20-year update in 1992 and in the 30-year update in 20, in 2004, we had exponential technologies. So the, the main difference is we're now making the point that you should remember that those exponential technologies comes from government investment. 
you know, it, it's not the individual firm that that puts in the university research and pays for the the. It is rich societies that run uh, universities and research institutes that actually do come up with the fundamentals of technological advance. And so, what happens with with uh, the big uh, IT companies, etc. They utilize the underlying very, very expensive stuff, you know, and then make patents and make money, you know, on using, you know, what society evolves. Sure, I see. Prof, I just want one more follow-up on the technology issue. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, for technology, are all technology equally good? Because in the book, I saw that you've mentioned things like green hydrogen, carbon capture, um, there was a quick touch on nuclear energy, but there wasn't an uh, elaboration on that. And you mentioned in the book that there was a debate about novel foods. Are all these technology good? Are we focused on the right technology to bring, bring you know, the world forward? I have a fundamentally a causal, cause and effect uh, understanding of the world. So you must always ask, what is the purpose. It is totally possible to use nuclear energy in order to produce electricity, but it has certain side effects. One of the side effects is not climate, it is storage. You know, that is the, the waste storage. So, uh, you know, so nuclear energy, in my book, it depends on what you want to achieve. If you want to reduce emissions in the short term, you should use uh, nuclear energy. If you're worried about the ethical issue of storing for 10,000 or 100,000 years the spent waste, you should not use it. And this is the same with most technologies that they have intended primary effect and then a number of unintended side effects. And what, whether something is good or bad depends on what is your purpose. Very briefly on the things that you have stated, I believe that it is a, that one should not, if one has an alternative, use uh, nuclear energy because of the long-term side effect, uh, the storage thing. On the other hand, when we're now in Europe this winter, you know where people are going to freeze because of the high gas prices, I would not hesitate for a second starting all the nuclear reactors of this uh, nation in order to solve the short-term problem you know so that's it concerning carbon capture and storage i think there is no because we have delayed action so long there is no way we're going to be able to cut greenhouse gas emissions fast enough to keep the temperature rise below two degrees plus two degrees centigrade unless we install large-scale carbon capture and storage on fossil gas production plants so that we can make blue hydrogen. Uh, all my friends in the environmental movement fiercely disagree with me on this, you know, because they see carbon capture and storage as a continuation of the power of the fossil industry. And yes, it is. But if you do the math, you will see that either we get two and a half degrees centigrade or we use carbon capture and storage during the next 50 years at, for what it's worth. 
So these are this is the way I would like people to discuss technologies, you know, looking at what are the intended effects and what are the unintended effects and then balancing uh, relative to what you would like to achieve. Gotcha. Thanks for that very comprehensive answer, Prof. And I guess uh, moving on to the next question, I mean, there's two very big uh, global summits happening at the end of the year, COP27 on the climate front and COP15 on the biodiversity front. In your opinion, what must happen in those summits to put us on the right foot forward? Two things. First on, an agreement to pursue the five turnarounds. So a global agreement that these are the five things that needs to be done. And the second thing, agreement that the 10% richest people of the planet should pay. Right. So really the core ideas for the book. Exactly. And you have, of course, already asked the question, will this happen? I fear not, but I desperately, I would be very, very, very happy if it happened. And in fact, in your book, you mentioned that optimism is necessary now, right? To move the conversation forward. What's your advice on staying optimistic amid all this, you know, conflicts and stalling of climate efforts, etc.? So I am, of course, personally a pessimist and have been so for a very long time since I ran the Climate Commission of the Norwegian government 15 or actually close to 20 years ago and produced the plan for how Norway could cut its greenhouse gas emissions all the way down to zero within the next 40 years and at a cost which was of the order of $300 per Norwegian per year, which is nothing you know, in the Norwegian perspective. I thought we would be celebrated as heroes, you know, presenting the plan at such a low cost. And of course, we were rejected. You know, we formed a political party to push this uh, solution. We only got 3% of the vote. So it means that 97% of the stinking rich Norwegians were not willing to pay $300 a year in order to create a better society for their children. So why should one be optimistic? (laughs) One could be optimistic because there is now yet a new generation. I'm 77. Now people who are 27 you know, perhaps they hold a different view so that they would be willing to start supporting a political party that is in favor of a strong and active government. The second thing is that we did see during COVID an amazing ability of weak governments to actually make strong decisions. And in some cases, even printing the money you know, seeing that the solution was not only to borrow from the rich, but actually, you know, start borrowing with no intention to pay back, you know, uh, and in some few cases, printing money, just like during the financial crisis. So it may be that some leading nations would follow what I see as the role model of China and start running a country with a strong government that actually funds uh, in innovative manners, you know, those things that really needs to be done and can easily be done if we decide to do so. The, The interesting question is the following. So you go into a society and you ask, 
how happy are you with life at this point in time? And how does this compare with five years ago? What fraction says that today is better than the past? And five years in the future will be better than today. In other words, what is the fraction of people that actually believe that the society is on the right path? You know, and that's what we need to achieve over the next 50 years, a situation where most people feel like things are moving in the right direction. A lot of work needs to be done in order to turn the decline in well-being into a rise, because I think that is the challenge. You know, that's what it means to save the world. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com. Follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you for listening.